Hi everyone, this is Caleb and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. It's a podcast for lifelong learners to where we learn from anything and from everything. And today I am joined by Mark Yarhouse to talk with him about his brand new book, Talking to Kids About Gender Identity, A Roadmap for Christian Compassion, Civility, and Conviction. And here on the Learner's Corner podcast, we're trying to create a safe place to have difficult conversations, to have conversations that are important, but could just be really difficult to talk with because there's so many different opposing views and depending on what the other person uh, brings with them, it's, it's just really complex. And sometimes it could be pretty complicated as well. But here in the Learner's Corner, we're wanting to dive into those conversations and and try to figure out how we could best love one another and also what we can learn from each other as well. So if you're on this journey of lifelong learning, please subscribe to my Substack to where I share resources of some of the different things that I'm currently learning from and trying to get out of the habit of it trying to get back to it, but also just trying to, um, yeah, just trying to figure it out as well. So let me tell you a little bit about Mark and then we will jump into the conversation. So Mark, your house is the Dr. Arthur P and Mrs. Jean May Reck professor of psychology at Wheaton college, where he also directs the sexual and gender identity Institute. And he is an award-winning teacher, psychologist, and researcher. Dr. Yarhouse has authored numerous books and articles, including the featured white paper on sexual identity for the Gospel Coalition's Christ on Campus Initiative as well. And without any further... Oh, and he has authored, you know, the book Talking to Kids About Gender Identity as well as several other books as well. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. You know, one of the reasons why I really wanted to have uh, Dr. Yarhouse on the podcast today is because this this topic of gender identity and uh, sexual orientation, this is stuff that isn't going away. In fact, it's going to be uh, topics that have been talked about for a while and they're going to continue to be talked about for a while. And anything that the wider world, the wider culture is talking about, it's important for us to talk about it too. It's important for us to continue to learn, to grow. And I would argue that uh, our responsibility as, uh, or at least my responsibility as a follower of Jesus is to engage in these types of topics, to engage in these types of conversations and learn from people regardless of whether or not we completely agree with them as well. Because as as we're gonna find out in this conversation with Dr. Yarhouse, that helps us gain greater empathy it helps us gain, gain greater compassion as well. And it helps us just have better conversations with people as well. Well, Mark, it is good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Yeah, thank you, Caleb. My, my pleasure to be here. Yeah, and we're going to talk a lot about your brand new book, Talking to Kids About Gender Identity. But before that... Anytime that I'm talking with somebody about like a work of art, and in this case, you you've been pursuing this work for for so for so many years now. I love hearing what got someone interested in just the work that they do, and so I would be very curious to hear, 
about what what got you interested in learning and exploring your gender identity and sexuality and gender dysphoria and and helping people navigate through it yeah so um it goes back to graduate school for me so this was over 25 years ago i was um a student at wheaton college and i was um I was asked to be the research assistant of the uh, program director at the time. His name was Stan Jones. And um, it was just such an honor to be asked. I really didn't know. I just said yes without really knowing what we were going to work on. And so I went to the first meeting and he uh, shared like some areas of scholarship he worked on. And one of them was about sexual orientation. And that's what he wanted me to work with him on. I had a philosophy background as well as psychology and he was looking mostly at how mainline church uh, like sexuality task forces were um, citing research in psychology on sexual orientation and then drawing moral conclusions, ethical conclusions for the church. And so he wanted to look at, you know, do they understand the science and then what's the logical relationship between the scientific findings and the ethical conclusions that those task forces, you know, were working on. So anyway, I worked with him on that. It became an article and then later a book that we wrote together, um, my first book, and was really excited to do that project with him. Um, And then he became the provost at Wheaton, which is the senior academic officer. And it's a very demanding administrative position. And he just didn't have the bandwidth to do the writing and speaking and consulting unless his research assistant would either do it uh, with him or for him. So I ended up doing that for the next maybe four years. And then um, when I finished my doctoral degree, I was um, impressed that there were no Christians in psychology that were doing work in this area that I knew of anyway. And the Christians outside of psychology didn't seem to be familiar with the research I've been studying for the last four years. And so you know, I prayed about it. It wasn't why I went to school. I didn't have a particular interest in it. No, no axe to grind around it. Um, so I sort of held it loosely and prayed about it. And, you know, doors just seemed to open. There was so much need. Uh, there were needs in the broader professional conversation in psychology. There were needs in churches. There were families coming to see me as a psychologist. And so uh, as the doors opened, it just seemed very much that God was inviting me to kind of um, you know, try to really be a good steward of all the mentoring and experiences that I had. And so that's kind of how I got into it. So I, I kind of came into it a bit dispassionately. Um, that's not how I feel about it today. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, so 25 years later into a career, I've, you know, uh, you know, we've inter- interviewed you know dozens and dozens of people. We've surveyed hundreds and hundreds of people. We've tracked people over years. We've um, met with families in my clinical practice. I, so it was, um, so now I care a lot about, it. I've had students who want to work with me because it's part of their story or the story of people who are close to them. So I care a lot about the topic today. I, I just want to be honest that when I got into it, it was a little yeah. bit, um, yeah, dispassionate. And, uh, I think that's kind of served me well because I didn't come into it with a big agenda. It was really, um, yeah, just kind of a slow entry into, uh, this world of, of research and uh, clinical practice. Yeah. For, for gaining that passion from it, was it just like hearing the stories of people, you know, with their, 
uh, with dealing with sexual orientation and gender identity, or even just the amount of time that you put into the work, or I, I would just be very curious to hear about what helped ignite that passion for you. Yeah, I think I think uh, empathy for people who were feeling great conflict in their life around their sexuality, particularly in their faith, like how do we navigate this? You know, should we try to change our orientation? Should we try to live as a chaste person? with sort of a, a besetting condition that doesn't really change. Like what are the ministry applications? How should we think about this as licensed professionals? Like those were all just very interesting ideas. And then you have students who, you know, they're passionate about it's their life. It's their or life of their loved one. And they want to look at these things and study specific issues. And so they bring a lot of energy into that. Now I'd always, you know, I'd always seen people then navigating sexual identity questions, same-sex sexuality and faith. Um, but I also saw um, a smaller percentage of people who had gender identity questions, which is more the transgender conversation rather than the gay, lesbian, bisexual conversation. So the gender identity question, um, you know, I'd always seen, you know, children, adolescents, uh, adults who had a discordant gender identity where they're gender wasn't mapping on to their biological markers like chromosomes and gonads and things like that. So I never thought it would become the cultural kind of centered culturally, like it has been in the last 10 or 15 years, but I'd always seen people like that. So it was kind of an interesting, um, yeah, it's been an interesting 25 years of, of work in that space. Yeah. What are some of the, the big shifts around like ideas around gender identity and sexual orientation? Um, that you've just seen over the last 25, I'm sure that there's so many, but like what's uh, one or two that stand out? Yeah. So I think with sexual orientation, one thing that even I struggled with is, is whether people could change their orientation. How, how likely was that? So I actually was part of a seven year longitudinal study on that very question. Is it, do, do people change through involvement in like Christian ministries and things like that? And, um, you know, I, I sort of looked at the research and said, well, I mean, every study that's ever been published has shown some people have changed. And, and that was true, you know. <clears throat> but then when you look at the quality of the studies, you know, they, they could always be improved. They were retrospective. They looked back. They, they didn't they weren't sort of following people moving along the process. They were people who said they changed looking back, saying, here's what I used to be like. And that's not an ideal design. So um, the study that I was a part of, you know, it's funny. Nobody liked this study. I think of kind of two two groups of people who are kind of in the culture wars around this. But the the um, the cynical pessimist would say nobody has ever experienced any change, and our study pushed back against that claim because we showed some people did report some statistically significant shifts along a continuum of, of attraction. But on the other hand, you have what I would call arrogant optimists who would say that anybody who tries hard enough or has enough faith can completely change from categorically 180 degrees from gay to straight. And we weren't showing that either. And so neither group was really happy with our study. And the more that I looked at our data, I actually felt like what we were reporting were largely changes in behavior and identity. Because if you go to a ministry, you know, as, as a Christian convicted about your sexuality, the first thing you're going to change is your behavior. I want to, I want to stop doing this, you know? And then the second thing, the ministry says, well, stop, talking about yourself or thinking about yourself as gay, don't use identity labels. And so you, I think those are some fundamental changes people make, but whether they change the underlying orientation or not, I think our study 
is a little bit difficult to interpret that way because all of the gains that were made were like in the first year and then they were just maintained over the next six years. But if you were thinking of orientation change, you would think of it as gradually changing over six or seven years. Um, that first year of change would be behavior, would be identity, not underlying orientation. So I began to really think about that study a little bit differently because of that. So that was one, that's one area. Yeah. With gender, um, the big change that's happened there um, is actually in our diagnostic manual. So years ago, we used to call this gender identity disorder. And today we call it gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. So what the field has said is that we used to think of this as a fundamental issue of your identity, but today we're seeing it as a question of your distress. So in other words, you can be transgender, non-binary, that's not the issue. The question is whether the discordance between your gender identity and your biological markers is distressing to you. And if it's distressing to you, we'll call that uh, a, a mental health concern. So that, that's a huge shift um, in just conceptualization within our field. Yeah, I remember reading, whenever I was reading the book, and that's that's one of the quotes that I actually wanted you to elaborate on, mm. is that idea of like the um, the conversation has moved from being about the identity conversation of, and, and you know, correct me if, if I'm misunderstanding it, but the, it feels like the conversation has moved from can I be transgender or can I be gay to how do I deal with the stress of being gay or being transgender or being bi? Does that, is that kind of what you're saying or is it something else? Yeah, no, that's especially around the gender piece. That's really okay. the most recent shift. Yeah. Um, the thinking with sexual orientation is quite a bit, quite a bit older, actually. Mm -hmm. There was a time when our diagnostic manual said that, that uh, homosexuality was a mental health concern in and of itself. And then it, um, in the, what, I guess the seventies, it became, it's a, dis, it's a mental health concern if it's distressing to you. So it was called ego dystonic, uh, ego dystonic homosexuality. And then ultimately it was removed entirely. So in a sense, what you're seeing with gender and gender dysphoria is running uh, parallel uh, behi behind but kind of next to it's it's a different argument it's a different um phenomenon but it's um it's it's a, it's several years later but a very similar trajectory let me put it that way mm -hmm. the other thing and i think you might have alluded to it a little bit in there um but especially around conversations around gender there's a lot of um there's a lot of disagreement around it too. Like yeah. they're like, we're still working through and still processing it. Can you talk to me a little bit just about like the, the nature of the disagreement around gender? Um, and then how does like the, the average, you know, you know, I know, I know that you wrote this book for parents, but I even think of like ministry leaders, you know, the person who's going through gender dysphoria, talk to me about how do you even figure that out whenever the experts are still trying to figure it yeah. out yeah yeah in another book um i i wrote about how i feel as a psychologist like i'm in an airplane that needs work on its engine but we're like at thirty thousand feet trying to sort of to sort of work on it and we need to land and get a hangar and sort of park the park the airplane and work on it and there just doesn't seem to be time you know there's, it's just so urgent for people which i completely understand i don't mean to be insensitive to that but 
but yeah, the debates are, you know, one, one debate just to pull one out of the sky is um, whether if you diagnose gender dysphoria in childhood, does it ever just resolve on its own? So it's called the persistence desistance debate. Um, and so about 12 studies that have been conducted would show that between 60 something percent and 90 something percent of children who are diagnosed or maybe sub-threshold just under the diagnostic criteria for gender dysphoria, that it seems to resolve on its own in, uh, I mean, an average of about 75% of the time across those 12 studies. So that idea that it would desist is really intriguing and that a small percentage of people, young people, it will persist into late adolescence, early adulthood. Well, there's a number of people in my field who would really push back against that and say that we've misclassified those children, those so-called desisters were never transgender to begin with. So it's kind of like you were you were following apples and oranges. And so as you tracked over time, you had real transgender people, you called them persisters, but they were the real ones all along. And then you had people who were never transgender and those were what you called desisters. And so that's actually a professional debate that's happening right now. Like how do we think about those 12 studies? And you know, how do we make, because that, that affects care then for minors. Like, do you have them go through puberty? Because children for whom it desisted said to, uh, said to the researchers that um, going through puberty really helped them consolidate their gender identity in a way that corresponded to their biological markers. So if you, let's, for example, if you're promoting medically affirmative care, where you think about blocking a child at 11 or 12 from going into puberty, and then you give them a year or two, then maybe you end up using cross-sex hormones. Well, blocking keeps them from going through puberty in their natal sex. And so do they really ever get to explore their whole natal sex before you've made the decision to medically transition them? So it has the persistence desistence debate is actually tied very much to another debate, which is do you promote medically affirmative care for minors as the best, you know, gender affirmative care that's out there. And so that becomes a big, you, you even see states, you know, legislating against medically affirmative care on behalf of minors. Let's protect minors from those steps. And then you have, of course, mental health organizations, mainstream uh, organizations uh, writing amicus briefs to say, you know, don't, don't, don't pass that legislation that we, we need yeah. to protect these kids and let them have medically affirmative care. So yeah, that's a, those two debates right there are just two to pull out of the sky and say that yeah. there's two, for example, okay. That's, those are two yeah. big debates. Yeah. Talk to me about how, like, again, going, going back to the parent, the person who maybe has somebody who's struggling with gender identity or even somebody, um, or I guess, the person who is maybe the parent of, of a child who's struggling with gender identity, or maybe someone is struggling with gender identity, or maybe you just care about somebody who's struggling with gender identity. Yeah. Talk to me about like, cause I, in, in topics like this, I know that there isn't like a, the easy, you know, do one, two, three, and you know, everything's going to be okay. But right. I know that you've had so like, I imagine that you've probably either had like the mental exercises or just talked with people so much about this that you probably might have like some good, I don't know, almost like things to think about before you make these types of decisions or like, mm -hmm. Hey, it's, yeah. 
you know, these are some things to consider because again, you know, reading through the book, I very much get the sense of like, you're, you're not necessarily going like, this is, this is the path forward. It feels like you're more of giving, like, these are a lot of things to think about before you make any decision. Am I, am I off in that? No, I'm glad you picked that up. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, you're kind of thickening the plot of the storyline that's being presented to people today. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, you know, I'm not meaning to be, you know, argumentative or combative. And that's really just, you know, you try to shine light to help people see more clearly uh, rather than uh, throw gasoline on a fire, you know, and, and sort of go into the culture wars that way. So when I think about this, um, you know, you want to think about the, uh, like I try to share with parents those debates as best I can. Like these are not settled issues within our field. There are recommendations from different organizations and the mainstream of what the field says versus different people who are arguing against that. So I try to, you know, just give families the lay of the land so that they have a better idea of even where there are some ongoing either debates or professional discussions and where there are guidelines. So I kind of go over those things as best I can. And then, um, you know, you want to think about the consequences um, of different pathways Um, what does the research show about making a social transition, which is completely reversible? What about medical transitions? The thing is we have very limited research in these areas. So maybe a handful of studies like on, on like, I mean, the social transition piece, you have more research on that, but medical Mm -hmm. over time, you don't have like 30 years of following teenagers who use cross-sex hormones for the next 30 years. I mean, and then you, some things we do know are going to be an issue, like the risk to a teenager's uh, fertility is a huge issue. Um, so uh, I don't know that, you know, it's a pretty hard question to have at 14, 15, 16. Would you like to have children of your own one day? I mean, that's a very difficult question to have to ask. And yet, yeah. if you're going to use cross-sex hormones, that's that's the thing that's the biggest risk in terms of the most impactful on their life. And so, yeah, those are things that you have people weigh for sure. A lot of people have questions about faith. What does God think about this? Which is obviously something that matters to me as a person yeah. of faith, but it's a very much, you know, it's, it's difficult for me to chime in on what God might be saying to them or they're coming from a faith background. And I see, you know, Catholic and Protestant and mainline and evangelical. And so I see all kinds of families so a lot of what I do is kind of direct them back to the the spiritual resources within their faith community because it's hard for me to 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 tell to tell them exactly well here's what the Catholic Church teaches or here's what um, Methodists say you know I, so I I think you have to be kind of careful with that as a psychologist and that's another good point is that I'm functioning as a public psychologist I'm licensed yeah. in my state I'm not in ministry in those settings uh, so it's a very different kind of an experience. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, as, mu- as much as you're comfortable reconciling, uh, just following, following Jesus with, with your work too. Well, I feel very, I mean, I feel very comfortable in the sense that I, I feel like I've prayed about my career. I've held it loosely as I talked about before. It, 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 it did seem at the time, like a matter of stewardship of the, yeah mentoring and experiences that I'd had. So I'm, I'm feel pretty comfortable. It doesn't mean I get everything right. It just means that I feel like it's missional. It feels like something God's um, asked me to be faithful, a faithful steward of. 
and I know I've I've made mistakes. I, I've 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 done things that I try to correct and do better, and I'm I'm open to correction. I, I certainly get people who give me their opinion about some of the things that I've weighed in on, some things I may be wrong about. So I try to hold that with you know some measured sense that we're we're all trying to figure this out. It's been a very complicated topic. Um, so uh, when I think about families, though, I think one thing I do try to maybe distinguish a little bit is I don't want to conflate, like if I'm working with a Christian, I don't want to conflate, conflate sanctification with what they should do about their gender dysphoria, for mm-hmm. example. Like in, in my view, gender dysphoria is a condition that people are trying to manage. It's distressing, right? So if euphoria is a positive emotional state, dysphoria is a negative emotional state that's associated with that discordance between gender identity and biological markers. And so when they're trying to manage this really difficult thing, um, I don't want to conflate efforts to manage it with somehow like sanctification or Christ-likeness. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't, I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit wouldn't be speaking to the person and guiding them. And, you know, you know, I think this Holy Spirit's tenacious in terms of, you know, dealing with me and other people that I know yeah. who are Christians, but the idea that like there's one decision that everyone would make because it's a reflection of Christ likeness. I just think that's a, a bit narrow, you know, for yeah. this conversation. Yep. Yep. I would agree. Uh, you know, one, one of the other things uh, or one of the other ideas that is going to be one of the ones that I remember most from this and uh, is this idea that you talk about mountaintop thinking and plateau thinking. Yeah. yeah and, right. and there's um, you know, I'll, I'll have you talk about the, um, the implication that you make for it as it pertains to gender identity, but I just love that idea. I've thought about it so in so many areas of life too. Mm, but would you okay. mind, um, you know, talking about it, the the idea itself, and then how it applies in gender identity? Yeah, the idea is that sometimes in life, people will sort of present to you a path, and the path inevitably would lead to kind of a mountaintop experience that you're supposed to have, whatever that would be. Um, and so in this case, I really felt like the broader society through entertainment, media, other influences, and even my field um, can sometimes be at risk of presenting medical transitioning as the mountaintop experience for anybody who has gender dysphoria. So if you have the diagnosis, you sort of start this journey and you're sort of hiking along, you're walking along, you're hiking. And the idea is that if you really achieve what you're supposed to achieve, you would achieve the pinnacle. The pinnacle would be the mountaintop experience of medically affirmative care. So it'd be hormone treatment, surgical interventions, things of that nature to make a complete transition. And what I was introducing was the idea of plateaus. And I was suggesting that the data is showing us, at least right now, this could change, but that most adults don't actually use medical interventions. And so I was citing a there's a U.S. transgender survey that was published. This is published 2016, so that was you know seven years ago or so, and so data from probably eight years ago. And so um, you know only like 44% of adults in that survey were saying that they used hormone treatment. This is you know only 25% used any gender confirmation surgery. So it's not 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 only not most, but it was it was quite a few under that. And so. And then the Kaiser Family Foundation just published a poll this year, 2023, and they were um, uh, 
reporting even lower rates. It was like 31, 32% used hormone treatment. These are adults. And only, um, I want to say 16% used any gender confirmation surgery. And so now it doesn't always say like with the Kaiser Family Foundation poll, it doesn't always say, you know, did they want to, but they didn't have access to it? Is it because of the cost? Is it because of the, because it could have been cost. It could have been insurance coverage. It could have been, you know, ethical concerns. It could have been um, not pleased with the quality of the surgery. I mean, there, there's could be a lot of different reasons why people don't yeah. do it. But the reality is it's kind of like talking to a teenager. And if they say, well, every, every, all my friends are having sex, are they more likely or less likely to be sexually active? Well, they're more likely to be sexually because they think everybody's doing it. It's ubiquitous, right? Well, I think the same thing can happen here. If, if you're a young adult and you real, you believe that everybody has testosterone, everyone's using tea or everybody's using estrogen, everybody's using you know hormones, everybody's using surgeries, but it actually doesn't line up with the data, at least at this mm-hmm. point then would, would you maybe give you pause? Would you say, well, maybe that's not a mountaintop I have to work towards. I could plateau where I am. And, you know, every time someone comes to see me, they are at a plateau, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, just on their own, through trial and error, people try to manage their dysphoria. So most females will, like, keep their hair short. They'll wear baggy clothing to hide, like, their curve of their bodies. Uh, they might wear a sports bra to sort of compress their chest or a binder, Natal males will typically have their hair longer. They might wear a little bit of light makeup. Um, They might wear baggy clothing, long sleeves, even in the summer, just to cover secondary sex characteristics like body hair, right? So, you know, people are already using strategies to manage their dysphoria. And so they're in a sense, they're already at a plateau. And a plateau could last for like six weeks, could last for six months, it could last for six years. And so when I meet with somebody, I'm really saying to them, if you we're in counseling together, I'm going to try to help you find your plateau. And in many ways, what you're doing today already is a plateau. But we'll see. We can work together and see if this plateau is going to work with you and for you, or do we need to look at a different plateau? So I like that idea a little bit yeah. better than this mountaintop that everyone moves towards. Yeah. You know, uh, there's there's another quote that you have, and it's a little bit lengthy, but I want to read it just because it was so powerful to me whenever I went through it. Um, you write, one of the related cultural challenges today is that there is a great push to move gender identity questions out of a mental health framework. You say, i.e. diagnosis of gender dysphoria toward a diversity understanding in which we celebrate differences in gender identity the questions you may be facing appear to be moving away from the mental health category. And then you continue and say, this isn't too surprising. Most people don't want to think of themselves as having something not aligning in the way it was supposed to. People want to be celebrated. And the challenge for the Christian is that we aren't called to simply celebrate who we are. What we celebrate is what God has done for us. Would you mind just elaborating and just unpacking that quote just a little bit more? Yeah, I mean this this is the great cultural shift we're observing right now, and I I um, often talk about it through three different lenses. So one lens is the lens of integrity, and it emphasizes the integrity of male female differences that God intended at creation. So drawing on the Genesis one and two accounts. The second lens I call a disability lens in which things aren't functioning properly. And so there's a there's variations that occur in nature, sort of like when you have hearing loss, right? That you don't think of that as a moral issue. You see that as like uh, something to have compassion around because something's not functioning the way it was intended at creation. 
And the third lens I described is this diversity lens. And it's a lens that really does celebrate differences in gender as a reflection of uh, what's possible. And so you celebrate as part of the larger LGBTQ community that has undoubtedly emerged as a culture, you know, to be celebrated. So I think that, um, I think that third lens is very compelling. And this is not something that I have personally experienced. I've never experienced gender dysphoria, Mm -hmm. but when I put myself in the shoes of people who do, I think to myself, that third lens would be very compelling to me Mm -hmm. uh, to see myself as part of a culture to be celebrated. And people do want to be celebrated more so than think of themselves as sort of going against the integrity of what God intended at creation or even something that's not functioning properly is not a way that people want to think about themselves. And so just for the day-to-day kind of quality of life, I think most people want to think of themselves as special, as unique, as something to be celebrated. Of course, we do celebrate people as made in the image of God and uh, as as tender to God who loves them. Um, but we really don't celebrate people in the way the broader culture does, as a, sort of a human, humanist, humanist sort of framework of of secular humanism, we really, we really look at what does it mean to grow in Christ likeness? What does it mean to follow after God, to give your life to Christ and to grow in that relationship? And um, what does God have for you? Um, How do we take the things that we experience in life and prayerfully consider what God would have us do in response to those things? So, I mean, it is a different orienting framework for the Christian. It's it's not something that maps on really as well to secular humanism, even though I find the appeal in that third lens. Uh, I can understand the appeal, but I, mm-hmm. I think it ends up ultimately falling, falling short, I think, for the Christian. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd be curious to hear, you know, just through, through your conversations with people who have experienced gender dysphoria, what's something that... Um, like for you and me, people who don't experience gender dysphoria, what's something that we wouldn't know about their experience or maybe not even think about? Yeah. You know, um, I remember interviewing someone, a teenager who, a natal female who, um, she just took really long, hot showers. Uh, she just was so disgusted by her body and just how she just didn't feel like she fit in her body. That it was, It wasn't the way that she looked didn't match what she felt inside. And I remember just, you know, her talking about these showers that she would take uh, so that her bathroom mirror would be steamed up. So when she got out of the shower, she wouldn't have to see herself. And I think, you know, like that's a taken for granted reality that most people have. You take a shower, you get out, you sort of get dressed. There's not that strong reaction to what you see in the mirror as as something that doesn't match what you feel inside that so this is why you know a lot of people in my field argue for hormone treatment is that what it can do in the redistribution of fat and things like that and muscle tone and things like that um, is that it can help with what's called appearance congruence so the, the person starts to see in the mirror something that matches better what they ex- say that they're experiencing internally And so, again, I'm not arguing for that. I'm not commending it. I'm just saying that to understand what that's like, it's like, oh, man, I've never I've never looked in the mirror and thought to myself that what I'm seeing doesn't match how I know myself to be as a as a man. Right. So, wow, that's just very powerful to to hear someone say that. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I, I kind of want to, I, I want to turn the corner and kind of talk about, um, for those of us who have somebody who's struggling with gender dysphoria and, yeah. um, and kind of some of the things that we can do and show love to them. But I, I, before that, is there anything else, you know, just about, um, before we turn the corner to how we can best express love to people, is there anything else that you want to make sure that we talk about, um, in regards to ge- gender dysphoria or understanding it or anything like that? Well, I mean, we don't really understand what it, what causes it. So when people often ask me what what makes people transgender, this type of thing, we don't really have good research that explains the phenomenon. I do think the phenomenon exists across cultures and throughout history. Uh, we kind of formulated around sort of a transgender experience, but even without that word, I mean, people have different terms for this throughout history. It used to be more psychiatric, more medical, but other cultures have you know, comparable phenomenon throughout history. So it's not like it's a, it's just a contemporary thing that we never dealt with before. I mean, even, even with transgender experiences, you know, we think of Caitlyn Jenner Mm -hmm. as a pretty well-known case, but, you know, Renee Richards, you know, played in the U S open as a tennis star years ago and had transitioned. And that was a, that was made a lot of headlines when that happened. Christina Jorgensen, Served, I think it was a World War II vet and transition. I mean, so there, there's not, it's not like it's a new thing. I think what's different about it is the, how centered it is within the cultural discourse around um, a time when we're pretty, younger people tend to be pretty cynical about sources of authority, about what the church teaches. And one of the main things the church teaches is norms around sexuality and gender. And so mm-hmm. we have this kind of cynicism towards um, organizations, uh, the finance industry, banking, churches, you know, education, all, all these different things are sort of being called into question and, and sort of challenged and deconstructed. So I'm not surprised, I guess, that we're challenging the reality of gender and having that tethered to biological sex. Um, but there is, a, there is a sense in which, man, we are questioning kind of everything, everything that's kind of an obvious thing that other societies hadn't really fundamentally questioned and, and uh so that's that's definitely a flag i think for us to think about and I, I would say so we don't really know what causes it but i do think it's a it is it is a widespread experience historically culturally um a lot of people ask about whether it's uh can social contagion you know is it like a virus that's being passed along you know we learned a lot about viruses under covid um mm-hmm. is it like that but it's passed along socially and you know, that's a good question that there are definitely elements of this that seem like that. But um, what people are doing is they're using language that was really well researched in the eating disorder literature. Um, And eating disorders are one of the most culturally bound syndromes we have in our mental health world, meaning they're, they're tied to how culture views body weight, shape and size and um, standards of beauty and attraction and that that's um, communicated a lot through entertainment and media. And so what we know from that line, lines of research with eating disorders is that adolescent females are in particular vulnerable to those messages and it can contribute to and maintain eating disorders, um, messages about body weight, shape and size, things like that. And so um, those things can be passed along within peer groups and really affect, especially adolescent females. And so that's been studied as social contagion. And so some people have sort of looked at what's happening around gender and said, well, 
that's what's happened over there. So they kind of copied and pasted that over here and said, that's what is going on over here. And I'm not saying it's not happening. I just saying we have to do the research to see if that's as well supported as we have over an eating disorder. You just can't copy and paste something and say it's what's happening. You have to study it. And so um, I do think there is peer group influence. I think those things are in play. I just don't tend to use the phrase social contagion. It would be a little antagonistic in this moment. And I'm a little worried we're going to overlook actual cases of dysphoria where people are really, really hurting. So that's the other thing I would just say that just a couple other pieces of information. Yeah. Well, I think uh, a good jumping off point into, um, into for those of us, you know, trying to figure out how we can best love um, somebody struggling with gender dysphoria is actually a question that you pose in, in the book. And it, again, it's, it's, there's so, there's so many times where instances like this happen throughout the book, but it's such a powerful question. And you ask, what way of relating will allow us to stay in relationship with a person and point them to a far more important relationship with God as good, loving father? Mm. Would you mind just kind of going off of that? And then we could kind of, kind of dive into a little bit of little bit of the specifics and stuff. Yeah. So I guess I probably um, err on the side. Uh, of trying to maintain a relationship with somebody and be a sustained presence in their life as they face decisions they're making now and in the years to come. And maybe that's me as a mental health professional, as a psychologist saying that's kind of what I do for a living. But I, but I, even in ministry, like I'm, I'm serve as an elder in my church and I've led home groups and I, you know, so I, I have ministry aspects of who I am as well. And I, I think I follow a very similar uh, model and um, so that has implications for, you know, maybe ways that you might respond to somebody who's navigating these issues and maybe you'd accommodate them in ways that maybe someone else might not. So, yeah, we can definitely get into specifics about that. But I think that that posture of, you know, God's placed me in relationship to this person and I want to be a good steward of the relationship he's given me. And I don't want to burn those bridges on my side of it. I want to extend the relationship into the future as far as I can, as much as I'm able. Mm-hmm. You know, one one of the things that you talk about in the book is is becoming more non reactive around some of these conversations that can be incredibly emotional. Um, yeah. Talk to me. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Of even like recognizing it in ourselves, and and kind of what the work looks like to become more non reactive, more empathetic. Yeah, I think people get better at it by by practicing it, by by you know leaning in and being in relationship with people, practicing you know not reacting or overreacting to people. It doesn't mean you don't care. I mean, I think that's sometimes one of the things people misinterpret in that is that somehow now you just are this don't have any feelings and you're just kind of going through life. That's not actually what that means at all. It just there's a bit of a discipline though to not being quite so reactive when people. You know, you know, you have friends in your life who might share that they're sexually active or they've, you know, they've gone down this path or they're drinking this or they're involved in this. Like, I care about my friends who share those things with me, but I'm not like overreacting to it. I want to react in a way that's commensurate with what they're talking about, but also commensurate with the relationship we have. And I don't want to be so, um, yeah, so reactive that I sort of, communicate to them, I can't be a resource to you in this, or I can't hold this with you. I, I can't, uh, you, you've now, now it's about me and my, my feelings about this, my reaction to this. 
So now we got to focus in on me. I mean, nobody likes that kind of a relationship with someone. So I think you practice with people. I think we get better at this with people all the time. I mean, we're good at this when we see a neighbor and they say that they're an agnostic or they're an atheist. Like that doesn't really phase people. It's like, okay, well, uh, you know, I want to be in relationship with this person. They're my neighbor. God placed me in relationship with them. So can we do that here? Can we get more familiar with diverse gender identities, ways that people may experience themselves or present themselves to us such that we're not quite so reactive, like we're at a carnival and, you know, this is kind of someone who's set aside and for display and we're all sort of ooing and aahing at them. That's, that's just not going to be very helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the other things that you mentioned in the book is us getting um, clearer definitions of what we're talking about in conversations with people around this. What, what would be some of the, the words or the phrases that would be really good for us to like think through or get clear definitions on um, in preparations for just even having these conversations with people. Well, I mean, I usually just start with even the difference between sexual identity and gender identity. We did at the very beginning of our Mm -hmm. time together, but you know, sexual identity is about labeling yourself as gay or lesbian or bisexual or straight for that matter. You're just using identity labels to tell people about your sexual attractions But gender identity is really about how you experience yourself as a man or a woman or a boy or a girl or a different experience of gender than that. And so, first of all, you want to make sure you're talking about the right thing. We're talking about gender identity. And then you want to start talking about, um, you know, biological sex is the chromosomes, the gonads, the genitalia. Um, Gender is usually the psychological and emotional experience of your biological sex. Uh, and Christians believe that those are tethered, that there's a relationship between the two. And the idea that they're, um, one is completely socially constructed and the other is, is, um, can be unrelated to it is um, something that I think is beyond what a Christian would want to commit to. I think we'd want to say, no, I mean, this is from creation. We think this, this is how God intended it. And I talk a lot in the book about how you carry that truth claim. You don't have to make it a weapon. You can carry and point and do things like that. Um, so maybe we can come back to that a little bit. But you know, these are these are some terms. If someone says that they're non-binary, you know, I think you you ask them. Well, tell me a little bit about what that means to you. And um, I've known other people who've used that same term, and they've meant different, slightly different things. I wonder what it means to you. And even transgender is an umbrella term that that community chose years ago. They wanted to move away from more medical, psychiatric terminology, and they uh, they chose transgender as the way that they would be known politically and publicly. And so it's an umbrella term. It could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So just you're sitting down from somebody and you're they say that they're trans, you can, you know, if, if you have the relationship with them, you can invite them, not in an antagonistic way or a gotcha way or you're on trial, but just invite them to talk with you a little bit about what that term means to them and and how they came to um, to find that, that that term captured something about their experience that you've not experienced. Like, I think that would be a great way to open that conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, going back to what you, you were alluding to, that Anne Lamont quote, which, which you yeah. read uh, or which you quoted the book. And, you know, the, the full quote is, you don't always have to chop with the sword of truth. You can point with it. Too. Can you, which, which is such a great quote, I, quote, I hadn't heard about that um, until reading your book, um, but can you kind of maybe tease out what, what that looks like? What does like pointing with the sword of truth look like instead of chopping with the sword of truth? 
Yeah. So I guess I'm getting at the, um, ultimately I'm getting at the posture I want people to take in the book as parents and as you raise your kids and that the posture there is ambassadorship. I want them to be good ambassadors of the kingdom and ambassadors don't come in wielding weapons, swinging swords around, chopping at everything that they see. Um, and yet many Christians, the, 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 the very few models that many Christians have are culture warriors who weaponize everything for political gain and just to sort of and you know lock horns with people for legislative purposes and advance their interests. And I know I get that. I'm not called to that. I, I pray for brothers and sisters who are in politics and other settings and are passing legislation and proposing things. I do pray for them. It's not something that God's called me to do. But um, but I think what ambassadorship is is pointing to things that are true and pointing it with your life. Like you hear the things that I believe, but you don't have to say it in a way that's antagonistic or puts other people on the hot seat or, you know, is a snide remark to somebody you can, Mm -hmm. if asked, you could say, you know, this is how I've understood this. This is what I believe as a Christian that like when I said that, that gender is tethered to biological sex and that from creation, that's how we understand. That doesn't mean that there aren't experiences outside of what God intended. Those things happen too. We live in a fallen world that's being redeemed. I wouldn't be surprised to know that there's, experiences outside of what was originally intended. All all of our experiences are outside of what was originally intended. So, um, so I think, I think Christians could appreciate that, um, but still hold some things to be true and hold them with civility in relationship to people who disagree with you. And then compassion through empathy towards a condition that you've never experienced yourself. So that's kind of where I go with these, three C's of ambassadorship is, is conviction, civility, and compassion. These are the characteristics of a good ambassador of God's kingdom to the world around you. And the world around you is increasingly unfamiliar with Christian categories and teachings and doctrines. And so you can't expect your neighbor, your coworker, uh, to have an understanding of the way that you think about these things. So now you're in a position that's not typical historically for Christians in the U.S. to have to explain basic things about how you understand sex and gender, but you don't have to be angry about that and um, antagonistic about that. Um, You can point to those truths with your life, with your relationship with them. You can uh, point to the relationship you have with a good and loving father who loves you and has a plan for your life. Like there's a lot of ways that you, you kind of do that throughout uh, day-to-day life. Yeah. You know, the, another great point, which you make in, in the book is um, to not have, or don't feel, don't give into the pressure to have every conversation in one conversation too, which mm-hmm. I think is, which is so incredibly helpful. I think of, of so many areas to where, where we just, we feel the pressure to do that. Get the whole thing yeah. out. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. Um, well, one other, one other thing that I would have you uh, elaborate on, and then I want to ask you one other question is, you talk about uh, the importance of staying curious, and I love how love how you phrase this uh, in the conversation. You say, "Stay curious, but don't let your curiosity lead to sharp questions that come across as accusations." Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Curiosity is a great posture to take towards people who have different experiences than you, and there's ways to phrase those questions. I try to give a lot of examples in the book of how to show curiosity. Um, sometimes people can be curious, but be kind of snide. 
and sarcastic and things like that, that, you know, that you're just burning the bridge of relationship that you have an opportunity to be a better steward of. So I invite people to be gentle with those questions, curious, you know, asking good questions. Like I've gave a couple of examples already, but you know, how did, how did you come to um, discover that about yourself? Or how did you come to find that that word captures how you experience yourself? And, or if they're asking for a, you know, use of a different name and pronouns, how have you found that to be helpful to you over the last several months? You know, I mean, you can just be curious without deciding what you're going to do about that. Like, are yeah. you going to use names and pronouns? Well, you don't have to decide at this moment in the coffee shop, you're talking to this friend, you can just invite them to tell you a little bit more about how they got there. That would be a great place to start. Yeah. Well, I know there's a lot of other things that we could talk about uh, in the book. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that we mention uh, in regards to anything that we've talked about um, or yeah, just anything top of mind that you want to make sure that we talk about and cover? Um, so uh, I think I've covered, so I think the, the two extremes that I didn't mention that I'm trying to avoid, I've mm -hmm. kind of talked a little bit about culture warrior you know, mentality and that gets a lot of play and entertainment and media. And um, there's more examples of that. Um, the other extreme though, would be the cultural capitulator, the person who just seems to take every change in stride. And they're like, okay, well, there's 50 plus genders. Well, there's 50 plus gender. You don't, you don't even, that person doesn't even let their Christian worldview um, engage those changes. You know, they're just like, well, we'll just kind of roll with that. I mean, that, I call that the cultural capitulator. So the cultural warrior capitulator, I think that church is looking for something in between. I call it an ambassador. And I'm, that's not unique to me. Other people have used ambassadorship. It's a it's a, a great uh, thought to kind of bring into these conversations. I think others have done that. But just the idea that you are representing the kingdom of heaven to people. And ultimately what you're asking someone to do, either as a parent or in a relationship in ministry, you're asking people to trust that there's a good and loving father whose plan for their gender is better than any other plan that people are going to hear around them. And so you have to ask yourself, well, how do people come to trust God that way? And I think the way people come, I mean, ask, this is something that everybody can ask. Everybody can ask if you're married, there's, you're trusting your marriage to God as a good and loving father whose plan for your marriage is better than your own. If you're single, you're trusting God with your singleness. If you're, um, have the opportunity to raise children, you're entrusting your children to that good and loving father. If you're nearing retirement, you are trusting God with your retirement as a good and loving father. So whatever it is that your stage of life, things that you're doing with in life, this is a very common Christian posture to take. So I'm inviting people to just think about that too for the long extended relationship you have with this person navigating questions around gender is could they trust God as a good and loving father with their gender and their experience of this? And the way you get there is that they ultimately come to know Christ as their savior and they submit themselves to for his salvation and lordship and the Holy Spirit works in their life and they kind of walk that out. So I'm suggesting that that is a long process of relationship building. And that has led me to a place of, you know, it's appropriate then to be hospitable to people, to extend the relationship as they ask you to, versus I know some people kind of think of, I've, just, I've got to tell them the truth about their sex as though they don't know that they have these chromosomes or, you know, whatever, but I have to declare these truths over them or I'm not being faithful to God. 
And I think what that argument misses is that there's a lot of, there's a number of truths. Yes, one truth ontologically is that they are male or female unless they have an intersex condition. But even there, they're generally going to be male or female. Uh, there are some exceptions to that. But there's other truths. Another truth is that God placed this person in relationship with you. Another truth is that God wants a relationship with them. You know, there, there's all kinds of truths. So it's not like you're pitting being accommodating and hospitable against truth. You're trying to extend a relationship that God's placed you in for the purposes, not just to be hospitable as though that's the end goal, but hospitable for an extended relationship in which God can use you to present the gospel and be a presence of the gospel in relationship to this family member, friend, neighbor, your own child. So that's kind of where I go with that. And I'd, I'd like that to be better understood by people who've kind of locked horns around that issue of uh, hospitality, I guess. Yeah. Well, Mark, I know that people are going to want to get the book and keep up with you online. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Yeah. So, I mean, the book is um, published by Bethany House, which is a subsidiary of Baker, and it's available there. It's also available on Amazon. Um, and uh, to keep up with me, um, I run the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute at Wheaton College, which is wheaton.edu backslash SGI for the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute. That's a great way for people to keep up with me. And then SGI at wheaton.edu is a good email. Awesome. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And just thank you for doing the work and for sharing it with us today. Yeah. Thank you, Caleb. I really enjoyed this time to talk with you. So coming out of that conversation with Mark, there's a couple of things that will really ring true with me for a while. The first one is what we were talking about with mountaintop and plateau thinking and just realizing how many, with how many different things in life, there's this tendency for us to think about if I get to this certain spot, then everything will be okay. If I reach this mountaintop, if I accomplish this goal, then everything is going to be all right. But rarely is that the case. Because it's usually, sometimes it's not as good as what we think. And other times that doesn't solve all of our problems either. And just how true that is, you know, we were talking about it in terms of uh, gender identity, but also realizing how true that is for so many other areas of life. And he contrasts it with plateau thinking of thinking about, okay, how do we continue to live with what we're going through and experiencing right now? And how can we make it work? How can we live? And, you know, the, the, the analogy may not be complete, but just that, that analogy of mountaintop and plateau thinking has really got me thinking about it as well. I think the, the other idea is what uh, we were talking about with the Anne Lamont quote as well and it's that and you know she says you don't always have to chop with the sword of truth you can point with it too and realizing that it's just a powerful quote because just as mark was talking about so many times we have a tendency 
to to chop and not to point. And so those are a couple of things that I'm thinking about from this conversation. A few things that stood out to me. If you enjoyed this, you know, please subscribe to the podcast. Please subscribe to Substack as well to where I'm just throwing out uh, different things that I'm currently learning from as well. And I think that's all that I have for today. So I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you to um, Mark for being on the podcast as well and the great conversation. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason, and until next time, keep learning and keep growing.